My guest today on Uncommentary is Dr. Jeffrey A. Engel, founding director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. He has taught at Yale, Penn, Haverford College, and before joining SMU's faculty in 2012, taught history and public policy at Texas A&M University. He also served as the Verlin and Howard Cruz 52 Founders Professor and Director of Programming for the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs. He is the author of numerous books, including Impeachment and American History with John Meacham, Timothy Naftali, and Peter Baker, uh, America in the World, A History of in Documents from the War with Spain to the War on Terror, The China Diary of George H.W. Bush, The Making of a Global President with uh, the former president and Dr. Engel, When the World Seemed New, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War, and a number of others. He's a frequent media contributor on historical and current events. His scholarly and popular articles have appeared in such journals as Diplomatic History, Diplomacy and Statecraft, Enterprise and Society, The International Journal, and The Air and Space Magazine. I'm glad to have Dr. Jeffrey Engel on Uncommentary today. Dr. Jeff Engel, welcome to Uncommentary. Hi, good to talk to you. So um, I got your name from a mutual friend, uh, I guess. He's he's probably a friend of yours and an acquaintance of mine, uh, Kevin <laughs> Cruz up at Princeton. Um because I asked him about impeachment, and uh, he said, oh, you've got to talk uh, to Jeff Engel because he wrote the book on impeachment. And sure enough, you did. <laughs> co-wrote, co-wrote, co-wrote. Well, I mean, you had I mean, you had some help. There's some guys in there, you know, with their names, you know, John Meacham and, you know, just unknown guys. But um, you're clearly the, the standard bearer. And I'm just kidding. Uh, everybody that contributed to that book is significantly aware of what goes on with impeachment. I was shocked when I read um, the names. So before we get into all that, why don't you, uh, tell everybody who you are? Uh, I read your bio. Clearly you haven't done anything since high school. Um, <laughs> so, uh, get us going that way and uh, you can talk about whatever you want, your education, your family, where you're, where you're at and anything. Uh, sure. You know, uh, I, I'm director of the center for presidential history at SMU, uh, which is a nonpartisan, uh, history center in every academic sense of the word. I like to stress that because, of course, the Bush Library is on our campus. Oh, very cool. That is the reason that SMU decided to set up a presidential history center as a completely separate entity that we would, you know, essentially have more conversations about the presidency. Yeah. But we do the the academic side, if you will. Um, I think we've been doing this now for, this is our seventh year. Very cool. And uh, before that, I was at Texas A&M for eight years teaching in the public policy school down there. Uh, I'm a historian by training. And actually, foreign policy is is really where I cut my teeth. Uh, So my first couple of books were on foreign policy. And then, you know, the last couple of years uh, transitioned into the presidency via studying George H.W. Bush. Uh, His archive his library is of course at texas a&m's campus uh and i had never in my life presumed that i would do something that recent as his presidency wow uh you know it's 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 you know so close to journalism one might say uh <laughs> but having a presidential library 300 yards from your office is just you know an incredible pull uh and when i was there we set up a team to try to declassify and make available as many documents as possible because as as you probably know from our absolutely broken federal declassification system and archival system (laughs) the the only way you get a document really 
is to know it's there and to ask for it. Wow. Uh, so you actually have to do the research before you do the research. Yeah. Uh, so make a long story short, at one point, our team at AM had uh, more documents in the declassification queue than the rest of the presidential libraries combined. Wow. Uh, so that was it. Made that was an easy transition then from Bush to study the modern presidency, which is where I'm at now. That's very cool. Um, so the and you may have said this, and pardon me if I missed it. The the Bush Library that's on your campus is H uh, W or W? Uh, you know, it is it is confusing even to me. Um, so uh, <laughs> the Bush Library on SMU's campus is the George W. Bush Library. Okay. Uh, the Bush Library at Texas A&M is the H.W. Bush Library. And, you know, I, I like to, to note to, to people who are interested in such questions that it usually takes about 25, 30 years for, doc, for, library, for presidential archives to really begin to blossom because right. that's how long it takes to get stuff. So the real cutting edge stuff, if you will, is now moving into the late 80s and early 90s. Wow. Uh, so, you know, check back with us in 2030 and I'll, I'll let you know about what we found in this library. <laughs> we'll go ahead and get that on the calendar as soon as we're done. Please do. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, thankfully, uh, the subject of impeachment has not come up a lot in American history. Um, you know, it's not a thing that, that we've had to deal with a, a ton of times and I guess we should probably be grateful for that. Uh, three times uh, or twice, definitely in my lifetime, and then apparently one potentially now uh, on the horizon. One, I guess, Andrew Johnson was a little bit before I was born. Um, why was uh, why are there instructions? And I'll read those. Uh, I'll read these before you answer. But uh, why are there instructions in the Constitution about impeachment? So there's one, and I guess this is um, the first section, second uh, section. See the House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment. And then just below that is an article that says the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the president of the United States is tried, the chief justice shall preside and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two thirds of the members present. Uh, and then there's another uh, about removing them, I guess. Uh, why why are there articles that are related to impeachment in the Constitution? Why are there not other ones? No, why why are there any? What, what's the purpose? Oh, okay. Just, yeah. um, I was going to say, I thought you said enough. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, context is everything. So the people who wrote the Constitution obviously had just come through the American Revolution, a mm-hmm. uh, revolution that they had rhetorically and I think cognitively come to really think of as a a revolt against tyranny. Mm. Uh, And therefore they knew that there was always a possibility that a tyrant could arise among them. Mm. Interestingly enough, they weren't necessarily sure that tyranny would come from the presidency. Uh, They were actually more concerned, in my opinion, that the tyranny would actually come from the legislature. Oh, wow. As I say, an overwhelming majority in a legislature could actually begin to act tyrannically. And frankly, that had, in some sense, happened in the brief windows of the under the Articles of Confederation before the Constitution was written. Mm -hmm. A couple of the state legislatures got a little bit overenthusiastic, shall we say, in mandating majority (laughs) rule. Uh, And so this really reveals, I think, in many ways, the fundamental premise, to my mind, of the Constitution 
which frankly is something that we often misteach our students. That is to say, we we all know, having taken high school physics, uh, civics, excuse me, that this Constitution is is really bound up as a separation of powers. Mm-hmm. Three in particular, the judicial, the legislative, and the presidency. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think we should look at it as a competition of powers, a struggle of powers, mm. because the founders believe that every institution and every person, just by being human, would want to accumulate more power. Yeah. So therefore, the best way to keep everyone in check is to pit everyone against each other. Uh, and really a struggle, uh, much more so than I think people appreciate today, that Congress, when you know, in the last hundred years, obviously the presidency has become predominant in American society. Uh, you know what Arthur Schlesinger famously called the imperial presidency. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the 19th century, I, I would argue Congress is actually much more important than the president. So you know, there's a sense in which the founders really wanted these these entities to compete. And if you had an executive that began to act tyrannically. Well, then you had to have some way to get him out of office. Uh, and to your point that it's very rare, uh, there's a great discussion that occurs within the Constitutional Convention over what the parameters should be, what the standards should be for when to impeach a, a person and remove him from office. And the first criteria they begin to debate is maladministration, wow. uh, bad administration, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, which is actually the criteria that's used in six of the state constitutions at the time to remove governors. Uh, and James Madison and others argued vehemently that that was a terrible standard because uh, bad administration, being bad at your job, is hard to conf- it can be easily confused with a person who's not doing what you want them to do. Right. <laughs> in their job. Uh, and Madison said, you know, we have to let we have to allow people to fulfill the office without worry that they're fulfilling the office to the best of their abilities is going to be problematic. Mm-hmm. You know, if, and if you have a terrible or incompetent chief executive, you know, the, the voters get another crack at that right. in four years. Um, the real worry is what if somebody is not just bad at their job, but genuinely harmful, uh, which is why the standard treason, bribery, or most importantly, high crimes and misdemeanors comes up because uh, high crime is a crime which somebody is committing against the interests of the people, Mm. against the state, against the body politic. Uh, Someone who basically places their own interests above that of the people that he or she is supposedly there to serve. Uh, So, you know, you can have a crime which is not a high crime, uh, for example, my favorite example is jaywalking. Uh, you know, we can ha- have a president convicted of jaywalking, and I don't think many reasonable people would say that would necessitate his removal from office. Right. Uh, but by the same token, you can have a high crime for which there's no crime on the books. Um, first of all, because the president might be remarkably creative and doing something that no one had thought of before. But secondly, because it's it's uh, it's beyond just the criminal code. It's a person who in a genuine political sense, has decided to, in many ways, pursue their own interests or even at times to wage war Mm -hmm. against the rest of society. Um, In our history leading up to today, um, has the process, so um, as I understand what's been going on recently, there was a 
uh, an inquiry uh, led by the House of Representatives, or at least a committee in the House of Representatives, and that's still going on. Where they've, they've been taking testimony, and they're saying now they're going to release some of the transcripts of that testimony. And then they've recently voted to, uh, I guess, an official uh, impeachment process. I, I know I'm not getting the terminology right, but they separated out the initial inquiry from the official process of pursuing or investigating impeachment. Has that been historically the way that it's happened, a two-phase thing or three or something like that? Or is it always just, hey, we're going to start the impeachment process? What's What's been the history on that? You know, the 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 history is, I like to say, idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a very small number of examples, as you pointed out from the beginning. Each one has common elements, but the common elements come in a different style, if you will. So uh, each of them has a phase where there is investigation. Uh, Each of them has a phase then where committees begin to more formally investigate. Uh, All that usually takes takes place behind closed doors, um, which, of course, is a big topic in the news today. What should be public? What should be private? Um, And it it is beautifully ironic uh, for a historian to see – many of the major players today on the Republican side railing against private hearings who were very enthusiastic for private hearings in 1999 Yeah, and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, You know, consistency is not Washington's forte. It is not. Uh, Yeah. So um, each of them has that phase. So basically, uh, you know, Ken Starr in 1999 was the investigative phase Uh, for Richard Nixon, the investigative phase you know, took place uh, you know, over the, the fall of 73 before the committee, the Judicial Committee began formally discussing impeachment. Uh, and in the case we're seeing today, uh, clearly there's been a lot of investigating going on by the Congress and by the House in particular, of course, before the determination was made to a formally open an impeachment ir- inquiry, which... Uh, I'm going to say two contradictory things now is entirely normal and entirely the way that I would say it should be in the sense that uh, you want to know that there's a little bit of smoke before you begin pursuing more smoke. Right. Uh, It is also uh, because everything is idiosyncratic. uh, It is also exactly the kind of setup that the accused parties party uh, would want to rail against uh, as bad process. So in you know, the East, Democrats railed tremendously against the fact that all this information had been discovered without our having any input and mm-hmm. without our being able to question people. Um, why should we take Ken Starr's word for it, if you will? Um, and today, the exact opposite people are saying, why should we take Representative Schiff's word for it? Uh, because it's all happening behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, basically, if you are trying to defend the president, no matter how you structure your impeachment process, you are going to be able to find ways to criticize it. Um, my understanding, uh, and you know, on all of my questions, correct, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know anything. Um, yeah. my, my understanding. I, I, I doubt that. <laughs> uh, is that, um, the, uh, the public, opi- public opinion shifted in the Nixon case, the Nixon procedure. Uh, public opinion shifted uh, dramatically before the public and open testimony started. 
and then after. So the public open hearings, I guess is the right word, uh, where people were saying this is what's happened and this is what the problem is, and they were giving testimony or whatnot. And people were able to see it for themselves and evaluate and judge for themselves and not listen to Schiff or Pelosi or McConnell or Graham or any of those folks, uh, that it was that that phase changed public opinion. Is that accurate? That's entirely accurate. Um, and it also is a, is a great example of how private and public hearings can work together. So if we think about what I think is probably the most important revelation to come out of the investigation, uh, which was the existence of a taping system in the mm-hmm. White House, which ultimately is the undoing of Nixon, I would argue, uh, that information was revealed in a private interview. But by private, I mean behind closed doors. Right. Uh, you know, a deposition. And actually the questioner who asked the question that elicited the answer that, yes, there's a taping system, was actually the Republican counsel, not the Democratic counsel. And once Democrats on the committee heard that person say in private, there's a taping system, well, then as quickly as possible, they scheduled a public hearing Mm. to say, sir, we're going to ask you the same question we asked you in private. Please give us your answer. Uh, And they tried to do it dramatically for the sole purpose of demonstrating to the public what's going on in an open forum specifically for the drama, but also specifically so that people can actually see what's going on. Uh, And the public hearings for Nixon really began to slowly but steadily erode public confidence in the president because you had reputable person after reputable person raising their right hand Mm -hmm. and saying, I swear this is the truth and telling things that were damning of the president's case. Uh, and you know, that is the same, it plays out in many ways in in the Clinton case, but with the opposite direction. That is to say, the more people that testified in the Clinton's case, the less the public was impressed, uh, because here's a great example of the distinction between a high crime and a crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one at all doubted that president Clinton had committed a crime. He lied under oath. Mm -hmm. Uh, most Americans, by the end of the process, had come to the conclusion that, you know, lying about affair, an affair is not unreasonable. Uh, in fact, you know, if you think about the fact that half of American marriages end in divorce, 80% of those have some form of infidelity involved. That's a whole lot of Americans who look at themselves in the mirror and say, you know, I probably would have said the same thing. Yeah, it's a whole lot of lying going on, ain't it? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it, it's it's a great distinction between you know, Clinton having an affair and lying about it and what the founders thought of as a reason to impeach someone, which would be, no pun intended, an affair of state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, private lives is not something that impressed Americans. And so I think the more you have these open hearings, the more you actually are going to create a sense of the public's genuine opinion on the matter. That's really interesting. Um, so especially the part about the drama of a public hearing. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I remember Oliver North testifying in the Iran Contra thing and sitting in his, you know, full dress uniform, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, you know, ramrod straight in his chair the entire time. I don't remember who his attorney was, but I remember the dude was really sharp and had like super, he, he really knew when to speak to get the maximum effect um, and so you had, you know, Ollie sitting there who was everything that every American wanted their men in, men in uniform to be. Um, 
now I'm thinking that how many of the people who have come and testified in these these closed hearings have military backgrounds. So I don't even know this fellow's name that just testified. It starts with a V, Vlindeman or something along that line. Um, I mean, I'm sure he's going to wear his uniform if he ends up testifying in public. And oh, yeah. some previous ambassador uh, has a Purple Heart and someone else has military service. And those things mean something to Americans. This is this is not um, uh, this is not mere political theater in their minds when you have the military who are giving testimony. And uh, with the dramatic side of it, I can't help but think that some of these uh, open questioning sessions are going to begin to sway the probably the very few people who haven't made up their mind yet are going to be impressed just by the appearance of these people testifying. You know, I, I would imagine so. Uh, I have to say all of our prognosticating abilities have proven so wrong over the last couple of years. I'm hesitant anymore <laughs> to make any assessment of the future, but <laughs> that would seem to be logical to me. Uh, and, you know, th- there's two things to, to say about that. Uh, the first is that that, in a sense, should make us uncomfortable because if we are at a place in our society where one must wear a uniform or have shown demonstrable martial uh, experience, mm-hmm. that would freak out the founders. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. They would not want only the military to be a respected institution, but as you and everyone else knows, since Watergate in particular, the only institution that has any respect nationally is the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Congress, you know, is, you know, obviously down close to single digits when you ask people if they like what Congress is doing. Uh, dude, I'm, so, a, I'm, a, I'm a pastor and the church doesn't get great marks sometimes either. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I leave that to whoever's going to impeach you. <laughs> um, so... The first thing, obviously, is that, you know, this is obviously something which is going to uh, sway public opinion. And the other thing that's really critical about it, it seems to me, is that we are dealing with a national security case in this instance. And that's unique among previous impeachment issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Nixon, Clinton, Johnson were all domestic matters. Uh, when the founders conceived of reasons to impeach a president, the vast majority of the hypothetical examples they came up with involved dealing both with elections and with a foreign power in some form or fashion. Uh, that's the real fear. And I think that that casts a completely different hue over this, because mm-hmm. this is not just a matter of the president doing something that harms some form of the public. This is potentially the president doing something that is not in the entire nation's national interest. Yeah. Uh, and that's different. And that, frankly, should, if nothing else, get people's attention that this is something that they really need to pay attention to, even beyond the fact that it's an impeachment. Um, I, I don't want you to take this as my asking you for some kind of prognostication, but you mentioned the question that was asked in the private testimony about this taping. And the answer came out about the taping system which launched into a, that helped launch into a, a deeper and broader and more open kind of a questioning that, that made people pay attention. Uh, in the, the reports that have come out, uh, both from direct testimony and reported testimony, uh, in the, the private things that have been, uh, and I guess some of this is publicly submitted testimony because there's a lot of quotes involved. Um, 
are you seeing anything yet that you would say that could be the 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 hidden tape recorder or that could be the revelation about the taping system in the in the White House? Are you seeing anything that in your mind you're thinking that could be something that's bigger than people are thinking about right now? Well, th- that is a great question because the answer is right in front of us. Uh, I when I first read the memorandum describing the conversation between President Trump and the president of Ukraine, mm-hmm. I said, I'm amazed this guy is going to last the day uh, because it seemed very clear, I think, to any neutral observer that the president was mingling domestic politics and international affairs, mm-hmm. which is such a verboten idea uh, and exactly what the founders feared. So the fascinating thing, of course, is, is, and I'm hardly the first person to note this, President Trump not only gave out that uh, quasi-transcript, he boasted about it. Right. And so it's a really fascinating dynamic when you have a damning piece of evidence that the defendant himself flashes around proudly. Uh, I I have never seen that before. Uh, (laughs) And it's really an amazing case, I think, where the impact of that document and those revelations, had they come publicly in week seven of the hearings, I think would have changed everything dramatically. But because it came out in week one of the scandal, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, basically it it diffuses its impact. Um, What what do you think? um, I don't know how to ask this question. do you, in your personal observations uh, of of Trump's behavior, um, if if the House chooses to impeach, um, Republicans are dropping like flies from reelection campaigns. I've never seen anything like it in my life, um, yeah. and there there's just no way that this could be. Oh, we're just you know old and tired. <laughs> you know, there, there's some amount of handwriting they see on the wall. Um, is the Senate? going to impeach if the Senate flips or is this all going to be done and, and just completely um, old news by the time the election comes around? I, you know, I think no matter what happens, it's going to be old news by the time the election comes around. I think. uh, And the reason is, you know, both sides have an interest in getting to solution fast. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the, the Democrats, want this process to end because to be honest, I think most of them expect it's going to end in his impeachment and acquittal. Mm -hmm. So they want 10 months for the American people to essentially forget that fact. Uh, And the Republicans know that the longer it goes on, the more mud is spread at their candidate. So uh, both sides have an interest in having this be short. Um, I I will say though that there is confidence that there's never and there's no possible way that the Senate will ever vote against Trump in its present configuration. Mm-hmm. You would have the exact same thing about six weeks before Nixon's resignation. Uh, in fact, you know, Nixon's White House vote counters had basically told him you know, two weeks before he resigned that uh, you don't have anything to worry about, sir, because we think there's about 40 senators who are going to vote to acquit. So you, you're good. Because, uh, of course, you need a, super, a two-thirds majority right. to, to convict. Uh, after revelation of new evidence, specifically what we call the smoking gun tape, which provided Americans the ability to hear with their own ears the president 
coordinating and conspiring to do everything that he had publicly been denying he'd done. Mm-hmm. Uh, within 48 hours, that number of 40-odd senators was down to about 14. Wow. So new evidence can change things very, very dramatically. Uh, and there's a real sense in which, uh, as you point out, the Republican Party is in the midst of its own civil war. Yeah. It has been for the last three, four, five years at least. Uh, and you know, you pointed out that all those Congress people and senators are choosing this moment not to run. Uh, that suggests that they are not happy with the direction the party's going or think it's going in the wrong direction more accurately. And that the people who are going to come behind them are going to be more in line with the president than not. So this is really a, a put up or shut up moment, I think, for Republicans, what, how they want their party to be viewed. Do they want going forward to genuinely be the party of Trump or not? They're already moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think the impeachment vote will tell us where they think they're going to end up. Is there uh, have there been parallels in the uh, in the previous impeachment proceedings of the um, I'll just say the the opposition party, the party opposite the president mm-hmm. um, uh, framing the narrative as uh, this is uh, illegitimate. This is deep state. This is so and so in the House trying to delegitimize delegitimize. Oh, sure. uh, the election. Uh, I, I can't remember all of that. I see it going on now. And I'm like, come on, folks, this is in the Constitution for crying out loud. Uh, what What are some of the parallels to that in previous uh, processes? Yeah, you know, I saw a, a great observation, uh, honestly, on Twitter this morning. And I, I, so forgive me, I don't recall who made it. That's the way Twitter, Twitter works, yeah, I guess. No kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, somebody pointed out that, you know, if the majority of Americans voted for Hillary Clinton, but Donald Trump won because of the constitutionally mandated electoral college. Mm-hmm. And frankly, most Americans who voted for Clinton grumbled, but accepted that mm-hmm. uh, the constitution, as you point out, also mandates impeachment in, in some certain circumstances or gives the right of impeachment to the house. Right. So right. You know, if you like your constitution on day one, you gotta be consistent and try to like your constitution on day, constitution on day two. Exactly. Uh, but in both previous cases i'm going to mention the the similarity and then point out a key difference in most similar cases nixon and clinton we see explicitly people saying this is a coup uh this is a a way to get done at the uh what you couldn't get done at the ballot box um this is a, a kangaroo court this is a witch hunt same exact words being used by Republicans in 74 and Democrats in 98, 99. Wow. Um, I will say one uh, key distinction is both Clinton and Nixon were in trouble, shall we say, in their second term for something that they had done their first term, Mm. which meant there was no opportunity for the American people to vote them out because they were already term limited. Uh, This is the first time that we've had occasion because, to be honest, uh, Andrew Johnson was never going to get reelected, period. (laughs) This is the first time we've had the occasion where a president under suspicion of impeachable acts is about to go before the voters. And and that's different. That is. That's that's really uh, 
That's really interesting. Um, speaking of Andrew Johnson, um, as we are coming near our end, and you take as much time to talk about this as you want to, that's got to be the least known incident of impeachment in American history because nobody was alive. Um, <clears throat> what led up to his impeachment, and, and uh, what was the result? Well, I'll tell you what led up to it. I'll tell you the result, and then I'll tell you what you need to remember going forward. Okay. Because <laughs> there is, I think, a really critical lesson embedded within the Johnson impeachment. Uh, Johnson was, of course, Abraham Lincoln's vice president. He was not his first vice president. He was put on the ticket in 1864, in many ways, as a national unity candidate. A hmm. uh, way to balance out the ticket, because Johnson was originally a Democrat, and Johnson had been the only Southern member of the Senate not to leave uh, when secession occurred. So he had basically proved he was a union man, mm -hmm. even though he also had distinct Southern sensibilities, shall we say, not least of which is of all the presidents we've ever had in office, I would argue uh, he's probably the most racist, uh, which is a pretty impressive statement. If you yeah, stop and think, no kidding. Uh, he was quite adamant that, that, uh, blacks were not the equal of whites, should not have any rule in the government, should not have any ability to rule themselves. Uh, and therefore, he immediately butted heads, once he became president, with the Republican agenda, in particular the radical Republican agenda on Reconstruction, mm -hmm. which was to try to promote the rights for uh, freed slaves as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, you essentially had a case where the person who was supposed to be the executive, which of course means to execute Congress's will, refuses to on many occasions. So he becomes remarkably unpopular almost from the start. Uh, there's another thing that's critical here, which is that Johnson was personally unpopular. Uh, he was not only the biggest racist to ever occupy the office, he is in deep competition for being the biggest jerk to ever <laughs> occupy the office. And I would use a word stronger than jerk if my mother might not listen to this podcast. <laughs> Uh, you know, he was, he was dour. He was angry. He was nasty. He was nasty to his friends and his foes alike. Wow. Uh, and, uh, basically, you know, woke up with a scowl on his face that only got darker as the day went on. And therefore, uh, he had little support basically, even on a personal level, Congress eventually gets tired of him, if you will, and lays a trap. Uh, by 1868, they passed the uh, Tenure of Office Act. This is going to get in the weeds for just a second. Mm -hmm. The Tenure of Office Act, which mandated that any Senate-approved high official or cabinet member confirmed could not be fired unless the Senate approved, which is kind of logically consistent when you think about it, though completely at odds with any sense of executive authority over their own subordinates, over their own cabinet. Right. The president wants to be able to hire, wants to at least be able to fire whoever, whomever he wants or she wants. Uh, and they did this explicitly because they knew that Johnson would fire the secretary of war, Stanton, uh, who had been Lincoln's secretary of war because he completely disagreed with him on the key issue of the day, which was reconstruction. Mm -hmm. uh, Johnson, good to his word, does exactly as, as expected. He fires Stanton, and that allows Congress to turn around and say, look, he just explicitly violated congressional will and broke a law. Now, it's worth pointing out that the, that the Supreme Court, about 10 years later, ruled that the law itself was unconstitutional and Johnson was right. 
but <laughs> that doesn't matter. In 18, yeah, that doesn't matter in 1868. So a, a trial occurs. Johnson wins and remains in office by a single vote. Wow. Uh, that vote was assured the old-fashioned way. Uh, the senator in, uh, who was the deciding vote was bribed. Uh, we know that very clearly at this point. Uh, John Kennedy included him in his Profiles of Encourage book as a profile encourage. Uh, he should not have. Wait, the guy that was bribed? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's that's how he made his vote. Uh, which was, you know, if you've ever seen the movie uh, Lincoln by Steven Spielberg. Yes. Uh, you know, and Spielberg has Lincoln's subordinates running around Washington trying to convince Congress people with all kinds of sweet treats. Yeah, post office directorate right. and whatnot. Right. This yeah. is this is an uncommon thing. Right. Uh, or less, or it's more common than you'd like to think, I guess. <laughs> uh, probably today as well. And uh, ultimately, Johnson remains in office, and this all occurs only months before the election of 1868. The lesson to draw from this, I think, is that Johnson was personally unpopular, which meant when people saw an opportunity to come after him for something he had done that was potentially illegal, they did so enthusiastically. And also, many people that on the political lines should have been his supporters had no interest in supporting him because they just hated the guy. Mm. Uh, and I think there's actually a direct parallel to President Trump in that regard in that President Trump is obviously despised by his political enemies, but I think you can make a fair case that he's disliked by his political allies as well. Yeah, a lot of them for sure, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I like to say, if you show me a list of Republican senators, I can show you the exact same list of people that Trump has publicly embarrassed or insulted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, there's a sense in which I think senators, if they are on the fence, might actually take great glee personally, in voting to convict Trump just because it's Trump, not necessarily because of what he's done. Mm. Dr. Jeff Engel. Uh, are you on Twitter? You mentioned Twitter. Are you on Twitter? Uh, I am, actually. Uh, uh, Jeff at, at Jeffrey A. Engel. At Jeffrey A. Engel. You're, uh, and you're the author of a number of books. I think I, I read 12 at last count. Author or co-author or contributing to the authorship of, I think. Yes. Um, and I'm assuming a whole bunch of uh, journal articles. Is that in your bailiwick as well? Uh, yeah. Uh, less as time goes on. You know, I think the older one gets, the more one wants to see things between covers right. of your own. So, uh, but uh, it's it's been really wonderful to work at a center, both at Texas and m and here, where we have the opportunity for a lot of cooperative projects. That's very and cool. I, I, I love doing things where we bring people together because I think the sum is always greater than the, than just its parts. Awesome. Jeff Engel, thanks for being on Uncommentary today. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Uncommentary. I really appreciate you stopping by. Big shout out to James Peach, my audio engineer, and my daughter Abby, who helps with the scheduling. If you're not yet following Uncommentary on Twitter, please do so at UncommentaryPod, or you can even follow me at Marty Duran, both on Twitter, both pretty active. If you have not rated and reviewed in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, that would be a huge encouragement and a blessing. So please do that when you get just a moment of your time. Again, if you would like to support Uncommentary via Patreon or 
paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and make a one-time gift there. Or you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary and sign up for a monthly draft of whichever size you really want, starting at about two bucks. And that would be greatly appreciated as well. Until the next time, Sobadeo Gloria.